Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 125 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Hello. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. Hello. Hi, Dylan. Hey, Bailey. Wait, wait, what? Bailey. Breaking Hi, Andrew. News. What? Oh, breaking news. Oh, hi, sorry. Hi, to- hi, Toby. Thanks, breaking Andrew. News. Hi, Andrew. <laughs> um, 125. That's where we started. That's where. Whoa. Yeah, I know. I know. I made it back to the number we started at three years ago, two and a half years ago. Does this make this podcast an abysmal failure? Well, I think now we're breaking even. I think it means we'll have this job forever. <laughs> you guys get paid, right? Well, I've been doing really good about not buying new books. My birthday is in what? Three weeks? So mm-hmm. I'm holding strong so, until then when I get like 20 and <laughs> and then, you know, the number goes back up. But yeah, I haven't had any shame this week, guys. You're welcome. Um, did you mm-hmm. guys buy any books? Any shame? Does a cookbook count? Ooh. <laughs> no, but I want to hear about it. I got a book called uh, Mooncakes and Milk Bread by Christina Cho, um, and it is uh, a baking book of specifically trying to capture recipes from like uh chinese bakeries mm-hmm. um i really love it like gets you how to make those buns those red bean paste buns those pork buns all kinds of good stuff and so i saw that and it was, it's a signed copy also by the author making it doubly cool and then the recipes just looked really cool the bread looks so fluffy i want to learn how to make it Nothing i was gonna good. say as soon as you as soon as you said trying to recreate uh, Chinese bakeries. I was like, I hope your red bean paste game is very strong, because it's been okay in the past. I need to practice well, a little made more. Some. Nice. I've made I've made red bean paste before. Yeah. Controversial <laughs> opinion alert. Oh, Bailey, are you gonna say you take your COVID test and then you like eat red bean paste or something? <laughs> I did get some feedback um, that it was weird that I like to take a COVID test, so I, I will accept wow. that. What? But um. Part of Dylan's family is from Japan, and Dylan grew up in Japan partly. And so they brought, <laughs> at one point, his family had this big, bar- not barbecue, big pip- picnic with all these delicacies from Japan, treats that you had growing up. And one of them was a red bean paste bun. And they're like, oh, it's so delicious, such a delicious dessert. And boy, did I not like it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would call it an acquired taste, but it's uh, for the, yeah, if you've never tasted it before, it can be surprising. I guess, but I think ultimately you're wrong, so that's yeah, fine. Yeah, no, I think you're wrong, too. <laughs> if you're expecting something very sweet, it's not sweet. It's a lie. It's not a dessert. It's sweet. Mm. It can be a little sweet. I think maybe you got a weird one. Mm. I was going to say, I'm sorry that my parents didn't get you a good enough red bean paste uh, dumpling. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely their fault. Not my fault for being weird. Yeah. I would say red bean paste... 100 percent follows up on the promise of its name it tastes exactly like red bean paste we didn't say red bean <laughs> jelly right. we didn't say red bean tart we said red bean paste mm-hmm. you got paste mm-hmm. yeah. well anywho i'm excited to try that try out making some milk bread try out making some pork buns um try to recreate some recipes that i usually can only find in restaurants so excited nice nice toby you don't have any shame I do actually have a book of shame. Oh, wow. I was, we were just right ready to move on. I know. You guys were ready. You were turning the page in your brain. Um, where we are now, there's a lovely co-op that we get a lot of our groceries from. Um, very good atmosphere. And one of the things they have right by the grocery checkout is instead of like cruddy things to like tempt you into buying like nasty crud for your stomach, they have pretty good books, like a pretty good selection of books there. <laughs> um and there's one that's been tempting me and Louise ever since we first went in the store. 
It is called All That the Rain Promises and More. And it's like a mushroom field guide for Northern California. And like that in and of itself is pretty cool. But I will put on the Instagram pages, I will put the cover of this book and I'll have to describe it here. It is a man like in a green field holding a gigantic thing of mushrooms, but he's also in a tuxedo and holding a trumpet. <laughs> and his expression is somewhere between like, oh, I didn't see you there. And have I got a surprise for you? That's the and more part of the title. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> um, it's And honestly, it's a great book. I, I love it. It's like really, it's a really good mushroom field guide. And then it's also like really funny. And there's all sorts of weird people in it. I highly recommend. I covered five stools. Yes. And one more time for you. That is All That the Rain Promises and More, Ellipses in the Title, by David Aurora, who I can only <laughs> assume is this fantastic gentleman on the front of this cover. Shroom, shroom, shroom. Shroom, mm-hmm. shroom, shroom. Very cool. Well, I don't have any shame, so good job me. <laughs> but good job. We'll check back in next episode, see how much shame I have. <laughs> I have a question for the group. Yes. We are all about to head on a wonderful trip to Andrew's wedding. Yay! Oh, yay! Yay! By the time uh, this podcast comes out, I will be, it'll be after the wedding. I was going to say, it'll be way after the wedding. A little peek behind the curtain. We're recording this way in advance. To be prepared. Hey. Um, so, yes. So, we're about to go on this trip, and then Andrew goes on a honeymoon, um, which is very mm-hmm. exciting. A nice two-week honeymoon in Italy. Very cool. Um, my question for the group, I don't think we've talked about this on the podcast before, how do you decide which and how many books to take on a vacation with you? Mm. Well, the answer is every book I own, I bring. <laughs> or at least that's how I used to be. I've gotten better about it. But I did used to have a habit of, of bringing way, way, way too many books. And I'm actually packing for my honeymoon now. So anything we come out with in terms of advice from this is great. Whoa. Well, yeah, I'll bring whatever gets picked from this week's choosing. Um, I'm also going to bring Sadie, which we reviewed a while ago because Ooh. I feel like it could be relatively quick. And we do have a few days on this trip where we're basically hanging out sort of at a chill hotel. Um, so I think there will actually be more reading time than typically I would have in a trip. Nice. I really enjoyed Sadie. I think that's a great choice for a vacation read. It'll be really fast and exciting. Good choice. Yeah. And if I go extra, I might even bring a Bardugo. Who knows? Ooh. I think that's great, Andrew. I also really like Sadie. Um, and, you know, can't go wrong with Bardugo, man. What about you, Toby? What are you bringing to Maine? Um, to Maine, I will be bringing, you know, I. it's funny that Andrew says he's bringing his to-read list book on his honeymoon. But I'm going to bring uh, my to-read list book, uh, Titus Groan. Um, it is a big old stinker, and I need to devote a lot of time to reading it. Um, and I'm very committed to reading a physical copy because, um, you know, something I didn't mention about this book when it was choosened, because I was maybe a little bit ashamed, I DNF'd this book once already. Ooh. Um, at like 150 pages in. So I know it is dense, it is long, and it is slow. So I'm hoping that with a little bit of an attitude adjustment and, you know, there's not much going on in Maine. I'm not doing anything in Maine. So, um, yeah, I'll get a lot of reading done, I'm sure. Um, but also, more broadly, I would say I'm very similar to Andrew. I used to take way too many books on vacation. Um, I have gotten it down to taking one or two with me, but I still fall victim to the curse of 100% of the time, I'm not interested in the book that I brought, and I will always, always peruse a like ratty hotel library. You know, it, it always has like 10 John Grishams and three David Baldacci's, um, but occasionally there's gold in there. 
Actually, the plural of Grishams are Grishai. I thought you were going to go baldachos. A baldacho. The Grisham verse. <laughs> Bailey, how many, is it over under five books you bring on, you're bringing on this trip? Let's all take a bet. Wait a minute. I say over. Over. I, I have, okay, I, I'll say this. I've already made my selections. So you guys can guess how many books I'm bringing how, that I've put aside uh, yes. to bring. Seven. This is a long trip. Yeah, you're going there for a while. I'm going to say, I can't say seven because that's not fun. I'm going to go even higher. I'm going to say nine books, and some of them are short. Okay, Dylan? What to say you better not bring more than three. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, the answer is six. Billy, we pack those. <gasps> but I lost in the Price is Right rules. So I'm bringing <laughs> two short books, one book, whatever the book that's going to be chosen is. I'm bringing one book that I'm kind of returning to my mom. Um, so that's four. And then two of the the next Court of Thorn and Roses books. But those are each like a thousand pages each. So they're big so chunkers. Yeah. seven is what you're saying. And you're going to get so many books for your birthday. I know, but... My- Why does this feel like shame? It, it I know it's not shame, but it feels so close to shame. It's funny because <laughs> it's kind of the opposite of shame. It's like my intention is to get through, mm. you know, these books. But what's really going to happen is I'm just going to buy new books. Mm-hmm. You know what they say about the road to Maine. It's paved with good intentions. And bears. <laughs> and bears. I will say one piece of advice, Andrew, and Toby kind of hinted at this. What I remember reading, like, at the hotel for our wedding and at the honeymoon was a book that like I was trying to finish before I started the next fun book. And I just was never mm. into that book and I should have just gone straight to the fun book. So my advice is go straight to the fun. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to try to embrace the fun and I feel like what I've got coming is a good balance, but who knows what my choosing book is. It could be a real stinker to quote Toby. <laughs> a real stinker, a big mm. stinker. Um, I will say, um, like a fond memory I have, it wasn't my wedding or anything, or but was you know it was somebody else's wedding. Louise and I were in Portugal for her friend's wedding, and one of the only times I brought a book and loved it, it was a Scott Lynch book. Um, it was uh, part of the Gentleman Bastard series, number two, Red Seas Under Red Skies, and ooh, that was good. I knew some of those words. It's hard with those big thousand-page books that people say are like candy reading. Because it's like, is this going to take mm-hmm. me a while or am I going to speed through it like Harry Potter? I don't know. Well, happy almost wedding, Andrew. Happy almost deciding what books to bring on your honeymoon. It's the biggest day of your life is deciding what book to bring on your honeymoon. So enjoy it. <laughs> well, uh, I have a question, Andrew. Was reading this book a mitzvah or was it a bit of a schlep? Please tell me. Oh, um, I don't want to tip my hand too quickly. First, I should tell you what I read, I guess. How mysterious. It's a mystery what he read. Well, uh, I read The (laughs) Mysteries of Pittsburgh by Michael Chabon. Oh, mysterious. I was going to sing a Pittsburgh song, and I literally can't think of a single song that mentions Pittsburgh. Who's that penguin? Sure. Yeah, who's that penguin? The famous song. You'd think Sufjan Stevens would have gone to it by now. Walking in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh has Primanti Brothers sandwiches, which has fries on them. So uh, let me give you a little teaser before we get right into it here um, with a little paragraph I wrote in honor of this book. Um, Michael Shaben's debut novel follows Art Beckstein, a aimless recent college graduate and the son of a gangster, as he winds his way through a summer in Pittsburgh. Without direction and newly single, Art falls in with a new exciting crowd that makes him question not only who he is, but who he wants to be and what he needs to leave behind. Mm. Okay. Okay. Sounds interesting, huh? Eh. That was a good paragraph about this book. 
Yep, it does sound... <laughs> to give a little more plot uh, context, Art is our is our Holden Caulfield, our, our lead, who's, you know, figuring himself out. He doesn't talk about phonies as much, but a lot of quotes I've seen about this book sort of compare him as a character. And he's just graduated college. He's spending the summer in Pittsburgh where he attended the University of Pittsburgh and is, uh, you know, killing some time before the real life starts. Uh, yeah. he, his dad wants him to be like more uh, on his front foot in terms of a, uh, attacking life. Um, and his dad is a sort of mobbed up higher level mob official, which, you know, they just drop in and you're, you're like, okay, that's fine. Um, it's like literally the first sentence of the book is like my father, the gangster. Yeah. It's, it's hard to imagine a person who's more front foot on their life than someone who's actively doing crime all the time. There, there you go. So while he gets his summer started, literally the first day of his summer vacation, he goes to the library to finish a paper that was late, which I don't quite understand how he graduated yeah. without finishing his paper. Um, and meets there two people. He like exchanges eyes with a woman who we later meet, whose name is Phlox, P-H-L-O-X, which I guess is a wow. plant. Um, oh, it must be painful when they exchange eyes. <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> You are not a father, Toby. You don't get to make jokes like that. <laughs> um, uh, and he meets another man named Arthur. Um, and they become sort of his window into a new crowd of people that summer. Arthur is gay. And uh, Art is very worried about the fact that he's gay and has a little bit of... Uh, eh, isn't great. And then through Arthur, who's like got the invites to all the parties and seems to know everybody, he meets a woman named Jane, who has a boyfriend named Cleveland. And... You know, the rest of the book is some combinations of those five people hanging out with uh, intermittent appearances by the dad. Wow. Intermittent appearances by the dad is my emo band name. Art uh, starts relationships with them, ends relationships with them. There's, you know, all kinds of wacky uh, romantic hijinks. And um, then it ends in a way I wasn't expecting. Surprise. Mm. Mysteries. Pittsburgh. Mysteries, Pittsburgh. For a man who doesn't want to tip his hat, the emphasis you're putting on this plot description is sure tipping a little bit for me. Well, you know, we're getting into it now. Um, I think that's enough of an explanation for what this book is. It really actually, and, and I feel backed up in looking at other people's reviews, its plot is a little confusing and like is not necessarily an A to B plot. It is definitely like mm-hmm. you're just stepping into things as they happen. Gotcha. I am going to do my orcs first this time. Because Sweet. I think that's, uh, to completely tip my hat, where most of my uh, time is going to be spent. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I want to like preface this by saying, like, I think Michael Shapman's actually quite a good writer, but, <laughs> and here are my yep. orcs. You can just tell this is a first novel. Like, it is the most first novel first novel I've ever read. Um, not to spoil any of Toby's research, but like the biographical elements of the art character are quite similar to Shaban. And he started writing it. I looked up this just because I was curious while he was still in college. Like by the end of the book, you can really feel the beginnings of great writing starting to peek out. But it just wasn't quite there for me. It like smacks of trying to imitate Pynchon or Don DeLillo. Um, like very similar sort of things down to the point where he like it spends the first few chapters like straight up writing what I think is Pynchon fan fiction. Oh, no. Like people have weird names. It's crazy. Sentences don't quite make sense. Things don't line up. It read very much like a college student loved Pynchon and wanted to write his own book, but because it was a new writer, wrote their version of a Thomas Pynchon book. And then, and then it does get better as he sort of works his way through it. That? Wild that the style changes like that, that they were just like, we're not going to bother to edit the beginning. 
We'll just yeah. let it be stylistically different. I mean, it is of a piece. It isn't like starkly, starkly different. But I, like, I straight up had this reaction to it where I was like, I've read, I've read these books. The last, mm. I've read these books a lot through this podcast. I don't want another one. <laughs> yeah, it really seems like you have a lot of those on your list, Andrew. Well, there's, I guess, a reason why I haven't read them. <laughs> yeah. And maybe he doesn't even realize he's he's doing it. Like as a young writer, like you said, it's yeah. just kind of. Oh, I'm sure. To him. Yeah. Yeah. Would you guys want people yeah. critically reading your works from when you were 20? Mm. No, I don't. But I also, you know. I would if they made me as famous as this made Michael Shabon. True. I, guess, I yep. guess I would let exactly. people read it, read it if uh, I got to write Spider-Man 2. Did Michael <laughs> Shabon write Spider-Man 2? Wait. Yes. He did, right? I, I, I do no, not. No, I don't think so. You're asking us to have a fact in our head that I don't think is fair. Yeah. I'll be back and, on that. I'll be back on that. And so I'm being a little flip here. It's not awful writing. In fact, as I said, it becomes great writing at certain points. Mm -hmm. um, but here's something I will say that really did bug me. This is a trend that uh, I think Shabin pulled from either his contemporaries or just writing style at this time. And it reads differently in 2022 than it probably would have done contemporarily. But uh, it's most stark in its treatment of like minority and gay characters, especially in the first half. Like, if you want me to get into your book, don't nearly exclusively refer to minority characters as nouns about their race. Like, I, it doesn't do anything for me. You don't Yikes. do that to your white characters. Like, mm. why are you doing it to these these other characters who you're asking me to become invested in? Or more problematically, you're just asking me to write off with a one-word description that's like, a black. And I, I, that doesn't jive with me, and I'm, I'm, you know, immediately turned off by that. That's fair. Ultra fair. And I mean, this book isn't, like, a, written in 1960 it, or written in 1970. It's like a 1988, I want to say, is when it was published. And it was probably written I mean, a little bit before that. But, you know, I don't know. I expected better. You're right on the um, dot. 1988, Andrew. Good memory. Boom. Uh, similarly, female characters seem to exist exclusively for men and even and only ever seem to talk about men. Uh, Phlox and Jane are our two female characters. And I think they're like the only two major female characters. There's like maybe a few side characters, um, but they're like described in terms of their appearance almost exclusively. They only, only ever talk about the men in their lives and they come across, you know, just as vehicles for the plot versus fully fleshed out characters. Uh, there's a lot of sex in this book. The descriptions of sex were incredibly clinical and odd. And yeah. I don't think it was intentional because they're definitely, he tries to differentiate between like good experiences and disappointing ones. And they're all the same and they're all weird and they're all <laughs> read like an, an anatomical book, but trying to be sexy. Maybe? What if he'd never had sex before he read this book? I don't know. I feel bad because I know I've read Wonder Boys and I, and I recall liking it. So I know he like, yeah. I know he's better. He's yeah. good. He's, he's great. Yeah. But you know. This is how I felt with about this book. Maybe he's ashamed of it too. You never know. Yeah. Um, the pacing and the events of the book didn't quite match up. A lot of things didn't feel earned. And I think part of that has to track back to uh, two things. One of which is that it is sort of plotless in that basically he's just trying to get through the summer. I mean, there are certain plot elements that you can follow, but it's not like all building towards something until all of a sudden, I guess it is. And the other reason why things didn't necessarily feel earned is a classic, classic early writer mistake. And I feel like such a butthead talking about, you know, an established author this way. But everyone is obsessed with this art character, this like blank slate yeah. art character who doesn't seem to do anything. But everyone is like enamored with him immediately. Everyone wants yeah. to be with him. Everyone wants to become his friend. Everyone wants him at their parties. And it's like, you haven't described him. You haven't given me any reason why this character is the center and it's just a it's i mean i definitely when i was 21 and writing stuff 
I did the same thing with my central characters. He described him. He said he's Michael Chabon-esque. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's all I need to say about my orcs. I think it's pretty clear that I had some strong ones. Don't feel bad, Andrew. You know, Toby and I just had harsh reviews on the last uh, episode, and it's your turn. Rule of threes. I guess so. I just, I wanted to like this book, and I want to like Michael Chabon's writing. And I know I yeah. do and can, so I was just, I had a frustrating experience reading this book. It always stings more when you really want it, doesn't it? Yeah. Hey, to palate cleanse, to put a little mint in our mouths, um, <laughs> here are some elves. Uh some minty fresh elves some minty fresh elves uh you can tell that shapeman is a good writer and will be even better the second half of the book does open up and becomes a lot better than the first half i think when he sort of starts to give up some of the crutches and uh he has some genuinely wonderful human observations and funny quips uh specifically and i want to do want to call out a relationship that i thought was really strong the relationship between art and his father really is complicated and interesting and layered where there's like fundamentally a disconnect between them and fundamentally like anger between them. But like, you can also tell like the pure fatherly love that there's there and, and, and paternal love that was very strong. And so you can see why Shabun is a great writer, but the whole thing just didn't come together to me. Side mm. elf <laughs> talked a lot about Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh's a city I love. So I liked hearing about, you know, the Monongahela, the Allegheny, uh, hearing about shady side and, uh, and Squirrel Hill neighborhoods. An address checked was about a block away from where Jillian lived when she lived in Pittsburgh. Love that. Whoa. And yeah, so ultimately it comes down to this. I am going to give it two stars. It might have veered closer to a two and a half, but I'm going to round down because of like the strength of some of my like sour feelings towards parts of it. Yeah. Well, two Fair. stars, but potential. And, you know, Michael, we know you can do better. I know you can do better. Yeah. I love Tyler I mean, and Clay. I, I, yeah. Yeah, there you go. I, I think that, honestly, the best elf I can say is the book that I did not like did not put me off reading future books by him. Yeah, that is actually a huge elf. We know he has better in. He wrote Spider-Man 2. Did he write Spider-Man 2? He did 2? write Spider-Man 2. I don't know why you guys have me second-guessed myself. Because no one knows that off the top of their head, and it seems crazy, <laughs> Dylan. And it didn't show up in any of my research, so I feel like I still don't believe you. <laughs> you can see the seeds of the relationship between Otto Octavius and Peter, young Peter Parker in that father <laughs> <laughs> great Shabon comes great responsibility why does everyone like this Peter Parker he's like very nondescript I mean he is Spider-Man <laughs> uh, okay well thank you for your review Andrew don't worry I think Michael Shabon is going to be fine we still are rooting for you Michael I have Yiddish Policeman's Union on my list we'll get back to you sweet uh, I do have some facts on Michael Shabon um, here's one of them he was born May 24th 1963 how about that good year Actually, I think pretty bad year. Yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> scratch that. Um, he's an American novelist, screenwriter, columnist, and short story writer. Uh, he was born in Washington, D.C. He spent a year studying at Carnegie Mellon University before transferring to the University of Pittsburgh. Wait, Just where's Carnegie like Mellon? Just like art. I don't want to denigrate University of Pittsburgh, but isn't Cal Carnegie Mellon better? Okay. Um, I mean, Jillian went to Carnegie Mellon, so I think so, but it depends on, I guess, what program you're trying to do. He went on to receive his Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing from the University of California, Irvine. Go banana slugs. Nope. N nope. Go yeah. anteaters. <laughs> nope. You can't just say banana slugs whenever it's California, Bailey. Go. Are they all bears? And how is anteater a bear? How is banana slug a bear? Santa We're Cruz is a banana slug. Yeah, Santa Cruz. I know that. That's the only one I know. Uh, his first novel, The Mysteries of Pittsburgh heard of it uh was published when he was 25 um he followed it up with wonder boys in 1995 so 
quite a big gap there. In two short story collections, in 2000, he published The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay that John Leonard would later call Shabon's magnum opus. It received the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2001. He's done more books than that, but there are so many of them, I figured I'll leave him alone. <laughs> but that's enough. <laughs> um, since the late 1990s, he's written increasingly diverse styles for varied outlets. He's a notable defender of the merits of genre fiction and plot-driven fiction. And along with novels, he's published screenplays, children's books, comics, and newspaper serials. Yeah. Oh, like he, what screenplays? Well, he's currently writing... Uh, I, I was kidding. I just wanted you to say Spider-Man 2 Spider-Man, again. Spider-Man 2, <laughs> and also Picard, and uh, Unbelievable. He's written a lot of TV. He wrote Unbelievable? Yeah. Why didn't a woman write that? Or he, de- he developed it with a woman. Okay. So... Um, He said he knew he wanted to be a writer when at the age of 10, he wrote his first short story for a class assignment. When the story received an A, he recalls, and I wish I could live my life with this kind of confidence. He recalls, I thought to myself, that's it. That's what I want to do. I can do this. And I never had any second thoughts or doubts. Wow. I feel like everybody on this recording probably had that experience and none of us were like, okay, all done. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I got a few A's and never thought anything like that. Um, Referring to popular culture, he wrote he was raised on a hearty diet of crap. Um, His parents divorced when he was 11. He grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and Columbia, Maryland. When he was in Maryland, he lived nine months of the year there with his mother. And it was a progressive planned living community in which racial, economic and religious diversity were actively fostered. He has written of his mother's marijuana use, recalling her, quote, sometime around 1977 or so, sitting in the front seat of her friend Kathy's car, passing a little metal pipe back and forth before we went to see a movie, which sounds like a pretty classic marijuana use situation. I was like, sounds cool. As we've covered, this was his first novel. It was his UC Irvine master thesis. And wowie zowie, we can only hope to be as lucky as this. Without telling Shabon, his professor, Donald Heine, that is his name, better known as his pen name, McDonald Harris. I don't know why you'd choose a pen name with a name like Donald Heine. <laughs> he sent it without Shabon's knowledge to a literary agent who got the author an impressive $155,000 advance on the novel. This is in 1988. Wow. Wow. I mean, that happened for me too, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, stop stealing my life. God. Um, it appeared in 1988. It was a bestseller instantly catapulted Shabon uh, to literary celebrity. Uh, recalling the time, Shabon says he was ambivalent about his newfound fame. He turned down offers to appear in a Gap ad and to be featured as one of people's 50 most beautiful people. Okay, <laughs> okay. Do you think that's real or he's just like, oh, they asked me to be in it, but I was like, I can't do it, guys. Maybe this is why he writes that the everyone loves art. Like, he's just a beautiful person, so it's like he doesn't understand. I mean, people want me to be in their Gap ad and to be in their people spread, <laughs> but I just said no. Well, do you want to know why he didn't do it? Uh-oh. Uh, it's not too bad. He said of the people offer, I don't give an S about it. Um, I only take pride in things I've actually done myself. To be praised for something like that is just weird. I felt like someone calling and saying, we want to put you in a magazine because the weather is so nice where you live. Everybody take a minute to Google if he's hot. <laughs> well, it's not that hot now. There is a striking photo of him with like a big gray beard and like a kind of stars and moons shirt that is pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. Um, after the publication of The Mysteries of Pittsburgh, Shabon was mistakenly featured in a Newsweek article on up-and-coming gay writers. And the New York Times later reported that in some ways, Shabon was happy for the magazine's error and quoted him as saying, I feel very lucky about all that. It really opened up a new readership for me and a very loyal one. My assessment is is that he was hot when he was younger and not so much anymore. Not that I wasn't listening to your last fact. 
<laughs> Lastly on this and about the autobiographical nature of the mysteries of Pittsburgh, he says, um, quote, I had slept with one man whom I loved and learned to love another man so much that it would never have occurred to me to want to sleep with him. So that's what he has to say about that. Mm. Our last little fun fact here, I just like to find stuff about writing habits. Um, and in 2012, he was on uh, All Things Considered with Guy Raz. And he said that he writes from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. every day, Sunday through Thursday. What? He writes 1,000 words a day. Uh, he says, quote, there have been plenty of self-destructive rebel angel novelists over the years, but writing is about getting your work done and getting your work done every day. If you want to write novels, they take a long time and they're big and they have a lot of words in them. <laughs> the best environment. <laughs> Call it <laughs> <The> metaphor. Best... <laughs> Michael, I don't think anybody is objecting to the thousand words part of that. <laughs> they have a lot of words in them. The best environment, at least for me, is a very stable, structured kind of life. And he did not say, but I thought in the middle of the dang night. Maybe his clock's broken. And that is Michael Shabon. It's just a taste. I know we're probably going to get more of him later um, when Bailey reads the Yiddish policeman, uh, the Yiddish policeman's union. You went Sean Connery there for a second. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, we'll come back to you, Michael. Mysteries of Pits by Michael Shabon. Two stars. What do you think? Does anybody have any questions for me? Well, we don't really have any questions for you, Bailey, because we already know. Yeah, we oh, already know. What do you we know? We already know everything we need to everybody know knows. about your mom. <laughs> Uh, yes, I read a book this week. <laughs> I guess you can tell us about it if you want, but we already know. I read a book this week called Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch, a novel by Rivka Galchen. First of all, big ups to Dylan. Thank you to Dylan for giving me this book as a surprise on Christmas. I was literally walking through a bookstore and I saw it. It's like, oh, and I just checked out the reviews. And I think I made it was like 90 seconds from when I first saw it, read the reviews and bought it. So yeah, well, yeah. Listeners, I can attest to this. It was at the Rough Draft bookstore in Kingston, New York, and I watched him do that exact thing. <laughs> Didn't he turn to you, Andrew, and he's like, freaking watch this. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he did just go, oh, yeah, I'm making this for Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, here's the premise, and you'll see why. Okay. 1618, Germany. Deutschland? Yep. Katharina Kepler, mother of the famous um, astronomer... Johannes Kepler, is accused by her nosy neighbor of being a witch. Um, and from there follows a darkly comic sort of, I would describe it as kind of a mockumentary um, exploration of this <laughs> accusation of witchcraft. It's a little bit like that Monty Python sketch of like, she's a witch. You know, I saw her do this. It's mm -hmm. like, what? And what I didn't realize before I started reading it is this is a true story. Um, what? Yeah. Johannes Kepler's mother really was accused of being a witch, and he really did defend her in court. Um, and the book uses a lot of, references a lot of documents from the time, like interviews, um, mm -hmm. testimony. Primary source. Um, diaries. Yeah, that they've translated to sort of colloquial um, English so you can understand. Sounds like the coolest DBQ ever. Yeah. <laughs> That's document-based quiz for people who weren't raised in the exact place that Andrew and Bailey were. <laughs> oh, took an AP course. Come on. <laughs> that is, that, guys, that is a fact that I learned from you like over a year ago. I can't believe I remembered that. Well, you remembered <laughs> it, so. So this is an amazing premise. Yeah. 
also um, the author Rivka Galchin. I had never heard of her before, but she has beautiful writing. It's poetic and funny and descriptive and immersive. And I was just in it. I was a little nervous because the reviews were really mixed on Goodreads. Um, Some people just were like, well, we know she's not a witch and they're just accusing her. But that's not what it's about. Mm. It's really just about the absurdity of the situation, the dynamics, like basically like we don't like this lady. So she's a witch. Yeah. Uh, Everyone knows that mom's a witch. That's from the get go. (laughs) But I'm going to give you some quotes to give you a sense. I just it's like I don't want to give it away. I just want you guys to read this book. (laughs) (laughs) So periodically they will have testimony from different people in the town and every piece of testimony it starts with the same question from the lawyers which is according to the author a real question that everybody had to answer which was hey you a witch (laughs) do you understand that any false testimony you knowingly give will provoke god's great anger in your earthly life and will deliver your soul unto satan upon your death it's basically like do you solemnly swear to tell the whole truth (laughs) but everybody gets asked that and this person's Response, that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about that 1600 separation of church and state, huh? There you go. And then this is another example of the tongue-in-cheek humor. So um, Katharina is staying with her son, Johannes. She's in a different town trying to avoid these accusations, like knowing that she could get in trouble and get arrested. And so Johannes says, it's far too dangerous, Mama. Do you hear me? You're in real peril, and so are your children. I know it will be difficult for you while we're away, but under no circumstances can you return to Leonberg. Absolutely not. They even are accusing you of having fled the jurisdiction. Returning would be like a rabbit returning to the foxhole. Next chapter. How happy I was to be back in Leonberg. <laughs> nice. It's just fun. She plays with the form. She plays with, it's told from a few different perspectives. She plays with that. But because um, Johannes Kepler is the imperial mathematician, she gets away with more than she probably would have because in general, people just don't like her because she's this lady who, she's a widow. She keeps to herself. She offers herbal remedies and people don't like that. Plus I heard she's a witch. <laughs> she just likes to hang out with her cow named Chamomile. And I'm like, me too. Uh, what a job title, Imperial Mathematician. And what a name for a cow, chamomile. I know. Uh-huh. It also, um, for those pages out there, it also has some references to like published books at the time because they were very rare, obviously. And mm. like Johannes coming out with his latest book and how beautiful like the physical copy was and them trying to sell it at book fairs. And I think that's really interesting because you don't really think about that. Yeah. Sounds really cool. All this to say, I love this book. I don't have much negative to say, except that I was worried I wouldn't like it, but I did like it right away. (laughs) Um, It's a five star for me. I don't have any orcs I can think of. It's a beautiful purple color if you need a purple book for your rainbow bookshelf. Um, Five stars, guys. I really recommend it. Um, Toby, I saw that you added it to your to read list on Goodreads. So are you going to read it? Yeah. I mean, after your review, absolutely. But this is a rare case where I didn't really know much about this author or this book. And then in doing my research for this episode, her interviews impressed me so much that I was like, I'm going to read this book. Seems really cool. Love it. Well, that's a great transition. Tell us your facts on Kigalchen. I will. Um, Rivka Galchin was born April 19th, 1976, and she's a Canadian-American writer. Her first novel, Atmospheric Disturbances, was published in 2008 and was awarded the William Saroyan International Prize for Writing. She is the author of five books and a contributor of journalism and essays to The New Yorker magazine. 
she was born in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, to Israeli academics. Um, when she was in preschool, her parents relocated to the United States. She then grew up in Norman, Oklahoma, where her father, Zvi Gauchin, was a professor of meteorology at the University of Oklahoma, uh, and her mother was a witch. Ha ha! Her mother was a computer programmer at the National Severe Storms Laboratory. Everybody knows your mother's a computer scientist at the National Storms Laboratory. <laughs> I'm still laughing at him, so I... Um, She received her MD from Mount Sinai in 2003. After medical school, she earned an MFA in 2006 from Columbia University, again Columbia, where she was a Robert Bingham Fellow. Dr. Rivkin Galchin MFA. Yeah. Galchin teaches writing now at Columbia University, and in 2010, the New Yorker chose her as one of its 20 under 40. This is a little excerpt, a very small excerpt from the Lit Hub podcast uh, called Thresholds uh, with Jordan Kaiser. And she's talking here about her threshold um, for writing a book, for maintaining interest in a book. I thought this was really interesting. She says, the threshold for me and in writing in general, it's almost like I get to the end before I want to throw something away. Because that's so my instinct, is to not finish a project. I'll start with high hopes and lots of ideas at what seems like more than could possibly fit into something. And then I find that in a funny way, if I don't have velocity on my side, I often undergo too many changes to have the same interests. To read something, you have to be interested for like four hours. She must be a fast reader. But to write something, you have to be in for a year or a few years. And that's my threshold, really, is to not throw something away. But finish something fast enough that I want to sort of, what is it? Swipe right versus swipe left. Tinder. (laughs) Yes, Tinder. The interviewer, Jordan, asks, that's amazing. How at risk are your projects generally? And she says, I think I have, and this isn't the way I want to write. This is not the writer I want to be. But I'd say I have like a 15% survival rate. It's sort of like tomato plants, and they're just eating each other up. So, Hmm. Bailey, this almost didn't happen, this book. Wow. But it rose to the top. It was the cream of the crop. Uh, This is from an interview with Powell's Books, and the interviewer here is Rihanna Walton. Rihanna asks, you mentioned in the acknowledgement section that everyone knows was inspired by Ulinka Roblak's The Astronomer and the Witch, which is about Johannes Kepler. I was wondering what drew you to study Kepler in the first place. Galchen answers, I was going through kind of a funny phase in my reading. I was really drawn, I'm actually still drawn, to reading scientific biography. I don't know why. It was just really soothing. You know how everyone kind of made it through the past four years in their own way? They had their own calming mechanisms, and I just found it really calming to read these biographies, even though most of these scientists had very difficult lives that were totally destroyed by politics and history. And I really wanted to read about Kepler, and there are almost no good biographies of Kepler in English. I really stumbled on The Astronomer and the Witch by chance, and I was just so kind of seized by Katharina's story. I dropped everything I was working on and just wanted to learn more and felt very emotionally connected to the story. I love it. I I think this is a great concept even without it. The, The fact that it's a true story just makes it all the more interesting. So I'm so glad she found that story. Absolutely. The interviewer asks a very awkwardly worded and very long question, but the but the root of the question is, why did you set this book in such a brutal, oppressive time period? What is it about that time period that interests you? And Galchin says, I think I see it differently when I'm done with a book than when I'm writing a book. So I just don't know if I'm sort of deceiving myself. But one thing about that time period, which was just brutal, is that I did find comfort in reading about horrible periods of time that ended. It's not as difficult a time now as it was then, but it's been a difficult and a kind of frightening time. And so I think I was attracted to a way to experience the current moment without having to look too directly at the current moment to sort of triangulate the thinking, because I find that gives me a better perspective. 
When I look at something straight on, I can often feel quite overwhelmed or susceptible to canned ideas about what's happening. So to sort of exit the present moment while still basically looking at the present moment from somewhere else helps me break canned or fearful thinking. I never dreamed I'd be writing a historical novel. Brianna asks, one of the things that interests me about early modern Europe and that I think you engage with so beautifully in the novel is how the worldview of the characters is informed by an active divinity and an overall presumption of interconnectedness. The separation of the individual from God, nature, and community that's a hallmark of modern selfhood is totally missing. But was it difficult to capture the way uh, Katharina, Simon, and others understood and acted in the world? Again, very cool, very complicated, interesting question. And Galchen answers, I feel like most of us, when we're children, have that same intense sense of connection and of being washed by a greater power. It's like a biological feeling that gets shed. But I feel like I definitely have strong residues of that, and other people do as well. And actually, I think of astronomy as a good bridge to those feelings. I'm working on a journalism piece that has me talking to a lot of astronomers, and their emotional description of their work doesn't feel that different from some of Kepler's letters. Just this sense of beauty larger than themselves and indifferent to themselves but still connected to them. In a funny way, astronomy is an easier bridge back in time than physics or culture. Mm, that makes sense, mm, yeah. yeah. So you can see maybe why I was like, I need to read this woman's book. These are amazingly insightful, cool answers. Yeah, I think you'd love it, Toby. And that's what I have um, right now on uh, Rivka Galchin. Awesome. Excellent facts. Excellent book. Thank you. Everyone knows your mother is a witch is a five stars. <gasps> All right. Well, I'm excited. Andrew has a game this week. I wonder if it has to do with witches, mysteries, Pittsburgh. I don't know. Astronomy? Find out. You will find out, and you'll find out right now. <laughs> I was stuck in a Pittsburgh mindset. As I've said on this podcast, I really like the city. So I uh, ignored Bailey's book this time, and I don't apologize. Um, <laughs> the name of the game this week is Campbell's Lasagna Soup. Hmm. Maybe it's a Pittsburgh thing. I don't know. <laughs> uh, well, as everybody in the entire world knows, uh, Andy Warhol is from Pittsburgh and the Andy Warhol Museum is in Pittsburgh. Um, and there's a neighborhood in Pittsburgh uh, called Garfield. So we're combining <laughs> those two titans of literature and art yes. into a game today. So what I'll be doing for this game is I'll be reading a quote and you're going to have to tell me if it is Garfield or Andy Warhol who said it. Oh, wow. It. Yeah. Uh, this is so hard, though, because everyone knows Andy Warhol hated Mondays. It's <laughs> so true. So uh, I will read the answer. Um, we will take turns. The person who says the name of Garfield's owner first gets to go first. John. John. Good job. Well done. Fair. Bonus half Arbuckle. point if you say his last name. Arbuckle. Arbuckle. Okay. Uh, Odie. <laughs> yep. Okay. You guys both get zero points. <laughs> Just kidding. Bailey, all right, you're going to go first. Are you ready? Yes. All right. It's not that I don't like you. I just don't like you near me. Oh, Hmm. that is hard. I'm going to say Andy Warhol. That is incorrect. That is a Garfield quote. Wow, I really would have gone with that too, Bailey. So, Bailey, I'm so sorry you have uh, disappointed yourself. Toby, it's your (laughs) turn. Okay, okay. I like boring things. Uh, Definitely Warhol. That is correct. Point for Toby there. One point. And he... He was actually saying that in reference to his love for John Arbuckle, so it's a little complicated. <laughs> it is, yeah. It is complicated. Um, I never think that people die. They just go to department stores. I mean, I think that's Warhol. I don't picture Garfield saying department stores. He also doesn't talk often about death. I don't know. Okay, you're right. Okay, that one was a little easy. <laughs> Whatever. They can't all be winners, kids. <laughs> uh, so, okay, you guys are tied one to one, but we're back to Toby. We're bachelors, baby. Ooh. This feels like it really leans towards Garfield, but I feel like that might be a trick. I, I gotta go with my gut. I'm saying Garfield. Infamously single. 
Your instinct is correct, though he does have a flirtation with Arlene. That's true. Um, yeah, so that's a point for you, Toby. Well done. You lead yes. two to one to one and a half. I mean to make myself a man, and if I succeed in that, I shall succeed in everything else. <laughs> make myself a... Uh, Garfield? Yeah, it is Garfield, what? but it's a weird quote. <laughs> I know. <What? laughs> Dang, way to risk it. I, yeah, I went what for the it. heck does that even mean? Was that like not even like, I guess we'll never know. It's a shame that all Garfield comics were lost to time. Yeah, no, I, I don't know how to find that, but it was listed in famous Garfield quotes. I mean to make myself a man, and if I succeed in that, I shall <laughs> succeed in everything else. Are you sure it wasn't like President Garfield <laughs> that said that? My idea of a good picture is one that's in focus and of a famous person. Ooh, I'm going to go Garfield. That is incorrect. That is a oh. Warhol original. Uh, All right, we only have a few more left. It is currently uh, tied two to two. And Bailey does have that tiebreaker by knowing Arbuckle. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not known for my compassion. Garfield. Mm. Garfield? Oh, I would have said the other one. Mm. Bailey, good thing you said Garfield. It's correct. Yay. I think that oh. one could have gone either way. Yeah, no, I definitely thought it was Warhol, so. Yeah. I spent a lot of well, time reading Fat Cat three packs. Look, we all did. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, we all did. I had those. And they were all like a weird shape. They're like rectangular. We still have some in our in our house in Maine. All right. So, Toby, it comes mm-hmm. down to this. If you get this incorrect, Bailey wins. If you get this correct, Bailey needs to answer another one to win. Okay. When I got my first television set, I stopped caring so much about having close friendships. Warhol, baby. That is correct. I really thought yes. someone was going to say Garfield on that. Mm-mm. I feel like he always had a TV, like not his first. Yeah. Time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's a good fair, one. But we don't, it, it does seem we like don't something Garfield would say. We don't learn about Garfield's past. Yeah. All right. So, Bailey, this is for the win. Lasagna. <laughs> lasagna, lasagna, hate Monday, John, John. I want to be a machine. Mm. I'm going to say Andy Warhol. And that's correct, Bailey. Well done. Oh. You win the game. You win Campbell's lasagna soup. That was, They were a little easier to differentiate than I usually find, but you guys did each at least get one wrong. No, every yeah. single one I win in my head, I was like, I could see how it could be both. And then I was just like, yeah, what's no. it more likely to be? So I think that was very good. good. I think that was I'm really glad. good. And yes, Pittsburgh's a great city. Visit the Garfield neighborhood, I suppose, <laughs> and uh, visit the Andy Warhol Museum. It's an interesting place. Where's the Garfield Very Museum? Cool. That's what I want to know. It's in Jim Davis's <laughs> basement, and you cannot get out once you get in. <laughs> Thank oh you for the awesome game. Now it is the time for Dylan to shine. It is time for Dylan to choose books at random from our shelves. No pressure. This is for our vacation. It's time for The Choosening. The Choosening. The Choosening. Hey, it's The Choosening. Well, Andrew. Hey, Dylan. <laughs> I know that you're getting married soon. Yeah, we've talked about it. This is what it's for. But are you ready for the next steps? You know, buying a house, having children that are made of ash and elm. What? <laughs> so are you, are you telling me my book is Children of Ash and Elm by Neil Price? <laughs> That's right. Your book is Children of Ash and Elm by Neil Price, which I totally thought was a young adult novel, and it is not. What an insane introduction. But yes, I'm really excited yeah. to read this book. This is, we've had some nonfiction pages on this podcast. I don't know that we've ever done 
a doorstop nonfiction. So this is a good time for it to happen. We got a lot of time before the next recording. Um, and this is a, a, a history of the Vikings. I bought it because it was advertised as being like this premier, amazingly researched um, book that's really interesting and also of a subject there's been like no official writing on before because it's such a, an undocumented time so i'm really mm, amped that's awesome well you know lin-manuel miranda took hamilton on a beach vacation with him and <sighs> now you know what happened after that he made moana okay i gotta write myself a musical well bailey i had a hard time picking your next book uh so i had to go to a group of people to help pick my next one so i went to a local book club down south uh-oh uh-oh. You have number 56, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slain Vampires by Grady Hendrix. Yes. Oh, oh Grady's back. Guess Grady is who's back. 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 back again. Well, the real slim Grady, please stand up. Um, I'm excited. I think this is the last Grady Hendrix book that I haven't read. Yeah. And this is one nice. that I think is the most well-reviewed and most loved. Um, my understanding is it's some lovely Southern ladies in a book club discover there's vampires in their town. <gasps> Just like us. But <laughs> I love Grady Hendrix's writing. I think he writes women characters so well. I think he writes horror so well. And, you know, the last book I read by him, Final Girl Support Group, I read in one night. So this will be fun. Thank you, Dylan. Yay. Okay, so that means in two weeks on the podcast, I will be reading The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix. And Toby is reading Titus Groan by Mervyn Peak. Ugh. Groan. <laughs> uh, that's going to be like a really strong genre episode. I don't know if we've had one of those yet where it's like It'll big, big genre books. Nice. So if you're Michael Shabon and you have an outspoken love of genre, maybe you should tune in. <laughs> but don't listen to this one, Michael. <laughs> yeah. Skip this, skip this one. one. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the to read list podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads, Instagram, and the Storygraph at the To Read List Podcast. And if you want to help us find new listeners, uh, a great way to do that is logging on to your podcatcher of choice and leaving a rating and review. It helps boost us up the charts, helps us find new people and helps us solve the many mysteries of our Pennsylvania towns. Uh, similarly, you find yourself in Pittsburgh and you're falling in with a new hip crowd that's teaching you more about life than you ever wanted to know. You could tell them about this podcast. Uh, word of mouth is the best advertisement we have. You really trust it when your friend tells you to listen to a podcast. So please tell someone in your life that you think would enjoy this podcast about us. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. Jillian, we're so happy to have you in the family. Happy wedding. See you in two weeks. Happy reading. Books, books, books. books.